You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Born and raised in the Northern Territory, Tony Tapcoots has had a varied career. From working on cattle stations, to owning a variety store in Borroloola, a dress boutique in Catherine, being a town councillor, CEO, author, and most recently becoming a real estate agent. Not to mention, she fought breast cancer and won. As you'll hear in this episode, Tony is a strong, resilient territory woman. She's also written two best-selling memoirs, one about her childhood on Kalani Station and the other about the years she and her husband managed MacArthur River Station in the Gulf. Think of this episode as just scratching the surface on the mountain of amazing stories Tony has to tell, all of which you can find in her books. She's agreed to come back on the show for a few more episodes, so keep your ears out for them. This episode was recorded a few days before Christmas 2023, so we started off with a Christmas story. The festive season in the bush can be really interesting. I grew up on Kalani Station, a couple of hundred kilometres southwest of Catherine. And in the 1960s, it was all dirt roads, of course, very, it was a really tough life living under a bow shed with my mum and parents and Aboriginal people. Mum used to write a big list and send it off with the truck driver to Catherine to get all the Christmas shopping. So she'd have a big list of all the kids' names, like there's 10 of us. So there's Tony, Billy, Shing, Sam, Joe, Ben, William, Caroline, Kate, Daniel. And um with a big list and then all the Aboriginal people, everyone got a Christmas present. So it was usually brute aftershave and a packet of cigarettes for the men <laughs> and those um perfume and powder sets for the, the ladies that you used to be able to buy in the chemists, like Tweed and I wish I could remember, and Avon. So, and usually for Christmas we'd get a new pair, some new undies and probably a new pair of jeans and a shirt. Those types of things. Anyway, big list, send it off to town. It was a big drive in those days, probably a good four or five hours, especially in the wet. Leave early in the morning, load the truck up or the Toyota to the hilt with flour, sugar and tea, tin ham, tin butter, some chickens, all the presents, tin peas, tin carrots. What other things did we I eat? have to ask, were these chickens alive or were they <laughs> already on oh, the other side? <laughs> on the other side. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing lasted out at Clarny because we didn't have many fences, so the dingoes just eat everything back then. Oh, and, of course, the rum and the beer, most essential, um, and some soft drink for the kids. On the, In the late afternoon, they were coming back through Willaroo and there's a bit of a notorious crossing there where the water comes up really quickly. It's not a huge river or anything, but it comes up quickly and can be quite dangerous. Anyway, Ivan and Kenny, who had been sent to town on the Christmas shopping duties, decided that the 
creek looked low enough and they'd forge it and they'd be home by eight or nine o'clock at night. And they got halfway over and slowly but surely it just moved gently off and rolled onto its roof into the river. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky it was the days of cars without air conditioning and everything, so the windows were all down. <laughs> oh, that's a good point, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Ivan was telling the story that Kenny had his bottle of rum stashed behind the seat, so they sort of both came up for air and then Kenny's going, get my rum, get my rum. <laughs> so they were diving down to. I was just going to ask, I'm like, I wonder what the priority was out of all the things on the back of the Toyota. What do you go for first? Yeah. The yeah, rum. Yeah. So um, they walked back to Willaroo. I think it was about an hour's walk and um, got some help. Or they got, they stayed there for a while, I think, and then they got a lift back to Kalani and went back the next day to pick up the gear off the vehicle. So a lot of it, oh, and all the Christmas presents and Christmas deckies and, you know, the fairy for the top of the tree, they all went downriver for the fish food. <laughs> so nothing survived. Only all the tin stuff, you know, log cabin tobacco and luckily rum and beer and tin hams and all those sorts of things. Survived. Some stuff that you could enjoy, but I'm sure the tobacco and the rum wasn't much use to you. Yeah, it wasn't much as a child. <laughs> used to the kids. <laughs> I can only imagine what your mum would have thought seeing them get dropped off the next morning thinking that's not the car they left in and where's all the stuff they're supposed to have with <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah, that was the bush. So everyone used, would laugh and just go, oh, well, we'll have to make do with whatever we've got. <laughs> Here's a gum tree for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gosh, well, I definitely want to do an episode on your childhood because eldest of 10 children, which in and of itself should is just an adventure, but then growing up on a station with initially no running water or power or anything like that, there's going to be so much to talk about. But I thought, because that's something I know you get asked about a lot, I thought today, let's dive in into your adult years. And I'd love to know about the very first time that you laid eyes on Sean. Well, that's another story as well. Bill Tapp, my father, had advertised for an assistant stud manager through the South Australian, is it the Land Magazine and the Queensland Country Life? Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's in those days. Oh, the Stock Journal, I think. The Stock Journal. Yeah. Advertised for a, an assistant stud manager. We had San Gertrude's stud and quarter horses and was just a very um, small industry at that time it was just foundling sort of thing you know had a few stud bulls and cows and we were bringing them into the Catherine show and showing them anyway Bill Tapp was going to Adelaide so he interviewed Sean in Adelaide Sean was working on a Santa Gertrude stud in somewhere in South Australia and when he came back he said to me oh I've got a tall dark and handsome Scotsman for you <laughs> which immediately to me was, ka-ching, won't be going there. <laughs> Not having my father pick, pick my boyfriends. <laughs> so that's virtually how it all started. So Sean arrived up in the wet season. It was 1974, wet season. About I remember it clearly it was April because the month before Sean had arrived in the Territory, I, one of the young stockman that worked for us was killed on the station so i remember the dates really clearly yeah, yeah yeah ivan woods and he came to Clarny when he was about literally 12 years old a uh, young white man and his family lived out in the wilds of i don't know the back of the edis or flora 
something like that, and he came from a family of 12, so the boys, they were just all leaving home really young to support the family. He came to live with us, so he's sort of a bit like a big brother to me. And I went away to boarding school for year 8, 9, 10 and 11, and at the end of 1973, I finished year 11, and I bailed up and wouldn't go back for year 12 the next year. <laughs> it was also the um, 1974 wet was one of the iconic wet seasons in the Territory at the time. And there were big floods all over the Territory. And there was a flood, the Coolabar Creek, which was dry for six months of the year, came right up into the back of our house and some power lines were knocked over. So they went down to um, try and upright the the power lines with an old red tractor and some thought they had turned the power lines off but they hadn't and he went to pick some up and he was immediately electrocuted and died instantly in the mud up to his knees, poor thing. That's awful. Oh, it was terrible. It wasn't far from our house and I could hear Bill Tat running up up there saying, turn the power off, turn the power off and we were all running towards the where the accident happened and turned the power off. We got down there. We gave him mouth-to-mouth for a good, I think, maybe an hour and a half. And it was me because I'd done my bronze medallion at school the year before, so I'd done a little bit of first aid in the days when probably no one did first aid. <laughs> and John Hart, the other stud manager, he was there and we were doing heart massage and mouth-to-mouth and all of that and kept hoping somehow that, you know, we'd, we'd go, I'd go, oh, I'm sure there's a heartbeat, and someone would go, oh, I'm sure there's a pulse, but there wasn't. That's a huge thing to take on at the age of 16 or 17. 18, I just 18, turned 18, yeah. To, to be the person responsible giving CPR. Yeah, it was incredible. I think it just sort of happened so automatically because also mum was on the radio telephone and the old radio telephone, you just had to wait until that red light went off before you could get onto the phone. Oh, and, really? Mm, so you, you couldn't just ring in. You just had to sit there it's, and wait. Does that mean that somebody else was on the line at the time? Yeah, different oh. to the party lines in Queensland and that. You just wait. There was a red light, and when it went green, you had to hit the button with your finger and hope that you got in. And they'd, okay. they'd clear the line every hour on the hour, and you're only allowed to talk for a maximum of 12 minutes. Well, that's lucky. Like, so I yeah. guess the longest, hopefully, you'd have to wait is 12 minutes if somebody else mm. doesn't beat you to it. But, um, so yeah, so it was pretty awful. And then because all the emergency service was down at Newcastle Waters, they were evacuating out all around there in that big flat flood country. Um, the police couldn't come. So we put him in, um, a spare house overnight with the air conditioner on, on a door. I remember so clearly the Toyota coming down and they'd got an old door from workshop or somewhere and that was our stretcher and lifted him on. Or everyone's all covered in mud. And the still and because the power wasn't on also the stillness, you know that that sound of silence? Mm. It's just no one said anything. There was just the squishing of the mud in the engine and then slowly taking his body up to that house and everyone just walking, no one saying anything. Didn't know what to say. It was incredible, incredible. How old would he have been at the time? Think? Oh, I think he was 
four, five, maybe 23 or 24. Mm-hmm. Very young. Very so young. Yeah. Gosh, no wonder you remember the date like so clearly. Mm-hmm. What a moment of impact in your life. And I'm just thinking, you know, you didn't have power at Kalani for some time. So on the one, on the one hand, it's, you know, oh, you know, if we didn't have power, that might not have happened. But then on the other hand, how lucky to have power that you could have the aircon on in, in that yeah, room and the radio, overnight. telephone and all those yeah. sorts of things, which came from the power. Yeah. yeah. God. So the helicopters, the helicopter emergency services came in the next day. I think mid morning to lunchtime and landed right in the middle of the flat. Everyone's just watching it. Thump, 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 thump. And two policemen get out and we walk over to the house and I was with them and I said to them, I feel like he's going to wake up. He just looks like he's asleep. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't really cry or anything. I think we were all a bit traumatized. Yeah. You know, just disbelief, really. I guess the only only solace of that whole situation is that, like you said, it would have been instantaneous, hopefully mm. just yeah, no time to feel anything. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I guess when Sean rocked up a month later, you know, a cute boy and, and love was probably the last thing on your mind because these things can take weeks, months, years to process. So you probably mm. weren't like, oh, hello, Mr. Scotsman. Like you had your own stuff going <laughs> hey, on. I had a really gorgeous boyfriend anyway. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, Dad's meanwhile. like, hey, I think I found a replacement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did you go from – um so were you guys friends for a while then? Yeah. Yeah, we were friends for a while. Yeah. And – um then the other guy left and I started going out with Sean and the rest is history, I guess. And how many years is it coming up to now that you've been together or, or married? Even? Um, I got, we got married in 1976 at Kalani. We had uh, 250 people camping out with their swags and at our wedding. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is a big wedding. That's a big wedding in those days. but it's every, a big wedding in these days. Everyone expected to go, right? It's probably a social event of the season. So, yeah, it'd be like going to the show or the races. <laughs> you go to a wedding. There weren't many. <laughs> um, so at 76 that time. and we're 23. So you'd be 47 years married. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that was when you were 20, is that I right? I was 20, yeah. So, Sean was 29. Wow. Oh, Makuga. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if you could say that about men. I don't know if you call them Makuga when they're older, but either way. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So. What, I mean, you've been together for close on 50 years. What was it about him initially that made you go, oh, you know, he's a nice guy, he's good at doing the stud stuff, whatever. Mm. Oh, he's actually a bit of a stud himself. <laughs> if I can make that assumption. <laughs> <laughs> he um, he was uh, extremely good looking and a gentleman, a good man, a nice man, uh, well-mannered all those things, but mostly he has the most amazing singing voice and he had a piano accordion and he used to play all the Irish and Scottish songs and when at showtime and Catherine would all be on the back lawn at my nana's house in 4th Street and we'd had this really big party. Not that many, most women didn't really drink then, but, you know, it was very social and my nana said to me, if there's anything you have to do, you have to marry him. With a bloke with a voice like that, you can't let it go. So he basically serenaded you mm-hmm. to 
into mm. marriage. And I imagine, you know, living so far from town back in those days, and there was certainly a much lower population in the territory, you know, some people might think, oh, how do you meet someone back in those days? How do you not mm. end up marrying your cousin? You know, mm. you haven't got much choice out here. And you get this gorgeous Scotsman. Well, the territory was so young then. And when you think about the stories such as Terry Underwood and Dorothy Singh, Sabu Singh's wife, and that, you know, they came up as nurses or teachers. So people weren't related. The territory was very young in the bush, really. That's a good point. Whereas now there are a lot of taps around, which makes sense because there was 10 of you. <laughs> yeah. And, but now, of course, you've got families established three, four, five generations now. Yeah. Yeah. That are part of the, particularly the pastoral story. So when you had kind of put the brakes on and said, I don't want to go back to boarding school for year 12, what mm. was your plans initially? Because this is obviously before you met Sean. So what- um, My plans was just to stay home and be on the station, basically. I loved, loved the life that I grew up in. I didn't do sort of typing and shorthand at boarding school, much to Bill Tapp's disgust, because I still had to work in the office and he had a little old typewriter. And I used to type up his letters and things. <laughs> I just loved the bush. You know, I had a wonderful family, um, wonderful Aboriginal families as well. The people that I grew up with, all the, a lot of the young men that I, at my age, say at that time in that 14 to 18, um, quite a few of them with really well-known names now, were from the stolen generation and came out of Reda Dixon home in the days when when the boys were old enough. They would just like, you know, ring up a cattle station and say, oh, we've got some boys, can you take them on? Or um, the police around town wasn't only coloured kids at that time, white kids as well, young people. You know, they'd sort of be being a bit naughty, so they'd sort of give them a clip under the ear and say, I'm ringing up Kalani or VRD or somewhere and get you a job and get you out of town. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think, you know, if I was um, being a bit mischievous and someone threatened me with having to go fencing in the wet season somewhere, I'd probably pull my head in pretty quick. So yeah, did it, did well, it work? Uh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. grew up with a lot of those, um, you know, the Ogilvy family you may know and the Hazes and all those really well-known um, families, Kings, Peckhams, McGuinnesses. And so for you to come, to want to come home, being back in the 70s, was there much opportunity for women on stations in that in that sense? Like would there ever have been – I mean, you're one of ten, so some – I don't know how eventually the plan was for succession with all the children, but was it something that you could ever have gone on to be like a head stockman or a manager or, or were women kind of still – boxed in a bit. Yeah, I think so. I was certainly wasn't thinking head stockman and by the time I came back and was, you know, young lady, certainly built up wouldn't have wanted me out in a stock camp. Um it was very much working with mum, um, looking after all the guests. We had a guest house and you'd get all those government workers and teachers. We had a little one teacher school run by the Department of Education. There was a, there was a lot of work in just cleaning and keeping the place going. and We didn't do a lot of cooking, luckily, because we always had a cook in the men's kitchen and all the kids would go to the kitchen and eat. We hardly ever ate at home once we had a, a real house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so then when you met Sean, what was the, the plan then? 
Well, we went out for a while and then we decided to, um, he got a job at King Ranch in Barrel in New South Wales and he was sort of really interested in following the Santa Gertrudis breed. And so he got a job and we went down there together and I got a job in Sydney and he was down at Barrel so I used to just go down on the weekend on the train or he'd come up to Sydney. It's, I don't know, two hours, maybe three hours south of Sydney. Where had you gone to boarding school? I went to boarding school at Scots College and PGC in Warwick in Queensland. Okay, so that's still fairly rural, Warwick, mm. like relative to like particularly mm. Sydney. So what was it like? Because I know, and we'll, we'll, I guess we'll cover off on this in your other episode that where we focus on your childhood, but when you moved to the station, you were five years old. So that's a very malleable age to be able to kind of go through a big change like that and go from living in town to out on a station. But being in your late teens or your early 20s, going from the station to Sydney, what was that like? Yeah, I think boarding school was a huge shock to me. We didn't have television in the Northern Territory. It was 1970. I mean, the Beatles had been, you know, the whole rock and roll era was happening. Music was exploding. Australia was becoming extremely modern. It was the days of the mini skirt, the pill, you know, coming in, liberating young women. and. We didn't have TV. We didn't know anything that was going on. I just grew up, you know, Patsy Cline and Charlie Pride were still pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> they still are now. What are They're you talking still about? pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So it was quite a culture shock for me. And we just lived a fairly wild life. While it was structured in that, as you know, on a cattle station, you get up, you know, at certain times of day and you, you have morning smoker and then you have lunch and afternoon smoker and dinner. It's, it's really structured. and. And probably even the order of um, who's the boss and who's not with the my parents being the boss sort of, but then you've got the head stockman and stud manager and your horse manager and your fences and um, everyone plays a really vital role in that cog in the wheel, but it's also very structured and probably I think growing up and learning good morals and good lessons and respect also very strict on how you, you know, when you were a kid, you just did not give cheat back to anybody, anyone older than you, didn't matter what colour they were. So, yeah, there were all those things. And, I I mean, I guess most even Australian, young Australian kids were at that time, the same time as me, were living in fairly structured um, environments, but it was very closed and very reliant on everyone in that community to play their part. So like when Ivan died, you know, he was he was one of our best riders and used to help, used to do the breaking in of the horses. He'd just transferred that skill from being a young fellow to being one of the horse breakers and horse breakers were revered. <laughs> it sounds like you're, I guess, everyone who lived on the station and, you know, within arm's reach of it, like, you know, there's a really strong community and that's your social social circle, your support network. That's, you know, just community is so important. So then when you find yourself in Sydney where you're one of, you know, I don't mm. know how many people back in the day, maybe not a million, but, you know, hundreds of thousands of mm. people and you don't have anyone from home around you, particularly as Sean's based two hours away. Mm. Well, it was more the boarding school. I was fairly worldly by the time oh, I, really? I okay. left and went to Sydney because um, we used to go to the Gold Coast. I had friends boarding school who lived on the Gold Coast yep. and 
all those sorts of things. But so you've done your time away from home, so it was. Yeah, I felt quite yeah. comfortable oh. in in finding my way. Yeah, and I got a job working in Castlereagh Street in some government job. Oh, I can't remember what what it was. It was sort of similar to our DIPL, <laughs> Department of Planning and in- Infrastructure. Shows right? how um important or you know <laughs> great the job was that you're like. Well, what was that yeah. job I did? Like, <laughs> yeah, it was sort of like DIPL. Yeah. Um, and that was fairly structured too. Anyway, I think. We were there for about a year and a half and Sean and I broke up and I had a big broken heart, so I came home to Clarny. Oh, was that after you were married or were you just dating then? Dating, yeah. 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 So um, I came home with my little broken heart and he stayed down there and blow me down. That's when the the big um, meat price thing, the cattle industry virtually collapsed and people were being put out of their work, 77, 78. And he didn't have a job, but he'd always remained really good friends with Bill Tapp. So Bill Tapp said, oh, well, just come back up here if you want. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> good work, Dad. Thank you. <laughs> um, so we sort of picked up from there. Yeah. Oh, well, that's mm. good. I, I didn't realise you'd, you'd parted ways briefly, but yeah. I guess if yeah, it's it not too brief. And, yeah. <laughs> what, what were your thoughts when you found out he was coming back? Or did you know or did you just turn up one day? Yeah, I knew. Um I wasn't all that thrilled initially, <laughs> uh, but anyway, here we are, 47 years wow, later. That's amazing. So where did you guys, after you were married, did you stay on Kalani or? We got married in May 1976 and in November 1976, um, the week before I turned 21, we left to go and live in Victoria. Down south? Yeah, Mansfield, Victoria. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. What were you doing there? Uh, again, because Sean, um, well, we knew that we, we needed to find our own way in such a strong family of characters and all that. And, of course, I got six younger brothers too, you know. We went down to Mansfield in Victoria because, again, Sean had got another job with in a San Gatrita stud. When we arrived, that job fell through. They were sort of really precarious years, those two or three years in the cattle industry so he ended up clearing uh ski lines up at mount buller for the summer <laughs> and i worked in the delatite pub doing counter meals <laughs> that is wild yeah did um, you we lived there then for almost four years before we came back to the territory what was it like being away from home i mean being one of 10 children and being the eldest you would have had your siblings still would have been young or some mm, of the, you that's know, the, right. the baby That's right, still ones. at all boarding school, loved them. And this is the age where, you know, there's no FaceTime or anything like that. Mm. It would have been hard to keep in touch with them and then you don't see them and then they're growing up and, and then also home is just so in your blood. So how did you go being away? Yeah, and I'm 18 years older than my youngest sister, Kate. Oh, so she would have just been a little toddler. She was two when we got married, I think. Um, so. Yeah, she was a baby, you know, and um, so there, there were still lots of little kids at home or at boarding school by the time I'd gotten married and moved down to Victoria. Did you find yourself being homesick or was it all right just being on a on a big adventure? Mm. Yeah, it was a bit of a big adventure, but I always missed home. I got sick of all those beautiful mountains and green grass and fat cattle. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to come home to, you know, all that open scrub land and, by that time, San Gatrus Brahmins were starting to 
creep into the cattle industry. I miss the um, the culture of my Aboriginal family and friends, and it's just it was so different. And you you couldn't explain what life was like up here. People still honestly thought, you know, there were kangaroos jumping down the streets and Aboriginal people walking around with spears and boomerangs and all those sorts of things. But then by then, it, it was changing dramatically. The pastoral industry, uh, the territory as a whole, as we got better roads, you know, flights, more flights in, so you're getting the important things like more fresh veggies, more access to the rest of the world. We had television, telephone or radio telephones. Telephones we didn't get out at MacArthur River till 1988, so still isolated in many ways but modernising extremely quickly. I didn't realise that. So before when you said we didn't have television, I thought you meant perhaps just out at Kalani, but do you mean the whole territory? The whole territory. It. We got it, I think it was 1971 when I was at boarding school. Wow. That or is, maybe Darwin did, I don't know, but Catherine certainly didn't. That is... That'd be worth checking out. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. You must have just thought, too, were you just, when you got to boarding school, was it like a, a real novelty and you just wanted to watch it all the time or was it because you hadn't had it, you were like, mm, whatever, that's just that. Yeah, yeah, no, I loved um young talent time because I always loved music and art and drama and that's what I loved about boarding school was I had the opportunity to find those things within myself which I didn't have at home. So when you found something like that and then you and this side of you when you come back home and that stuff's not there how did you balance that? In the school holidays it didn't matter I just loved being home so you just fall back into that life you know bring back some music, um, trying to think, of, you know, like Cat Stevens and all that at the time and a bit more than Slim Dusty and <laughs> <laughs> um, cassettes. I used to bring home cassettes and a cassette player. So all the young people my age, we'd all listen to all the modern music. And when <laughs> you came home after the stint in Victoria, was that for good? Have you been here ever since? Yeah, yeah. We, oh. came, we came back up to work at VRD. Victoria River Downs. Downs yep. Yeah. Was that what what was the role there? Again, Sean came back to work with the stud cattle and we were um we were there for nearly two years. And then I had I had Ben, who was two, and I had Shannon, uh not Shannon Megan in nineteen eighty one. We left Victoria River Downs because Sean had got a job at MacArthur River Station as assistant manager and so he felt as as was right that there was more of a career path there where there wasn't at the time at Victoria Downs. So where is uh, MacArthur River? MacArthur River is 600 kilometres south southeast of Catherine near Borroloola. Okay. So you go to Heartbreak, um, what is it, Daily Waters, mm-hmm. hang a left for three or 400 kilometres, Heartbreak Hotel, MacArthur River Station and then Borroloola. Oh, okay. So I've driven once from Brunette Downs up to Heartbreak Hotel somehow and then I came back out at Daily Waters. So yeah. I've probably been close by, but I've never, that's the only time I've kind of gone near that part of the world. So for all our listeners that haven't been there yet, mm. can you describe it? Because, you know, I think we can conjure up visions of the top end or, you know, Alice Springs and Uluru, mm. but what is this part of the territory like? It's much tougher country as far as cattle country goes. A lot of escarpment country, 
um, in that area. And MacArthur River Station was owned by Mount Isa Mines and they bought it. They owned MacArthur River, Tarwalla and Bingbong Station, which took them right through to the coast to protect the MacArthur River mine, which wasn't operating when we were there. Okay. So had it mm. been operating previously? Not really. It was always in development. Oh, okay. Phase. Also, yeah. can we just say, you said Bing Bong Station? Yeah, isn't that the best That's name? That's the best name. When you, as soon as you said that, I was like, does that still exist today? Because I have not seen that on the pastoral map. Oh, no. Well, now it's um, the big Bing Bong port. So the MacArthur, all of the minerals from MacArthur River go down to Bing Bong, which is 80, 100 k's to the coast through Borolula, and there's a big port there now. And that was always the 2050-year plan. Ah, okay. For that, yeah. So yeah. we managed the cattle station side of it, which had a Brahmin stud. Again, I'm just sure I can already think of the title of Sean's episode, Sean the Stud Man. <laughs> <laughs> Sean the I Stud. I was trying to do a little story about him when I was going to um, put um, a Scotsman in the outback. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Scottish stud. <laughs> so... Tell me about your years at MacArthur River. I guess you've got two kids by the time you arrive there. You, mm. you know, station life is nothing new to you. So, but that, I guess it's a different part of the territory from home and you're probably a fair drive to go back and visit your parents. Yeah, we didn't go back as much, of course, but at Victoria River Down Station, there were managers. So it's a different to being a child of the owner or a part of the ownership. And MacArthur River was the same. We went down there, we had managers, but there was a plan for that uh, property and the manager to move on. And so I think we went in 81 and in 84, Jack and Rita Gregg, who were the managers, thinking, knowing that this is owned by Mount Isa Mines and Kalinta Holdings was their pastoral section of it. They had properties around Townsville. So Jack and Rita were transferred down to manage a few of the properties, the general manager-style job. They were getting quite elderly by then, or, you know, in their 60s anyway. I was going to say, well, you say that, and I'm looking at you now knowing you're older than that, but you are <laughs> you are not what I would describe as quite elderly. <laughs> Far from it. <laughs> um, but that was lovely for him. He'd worked hard. He'd, he'd managed properties in the Roper River region in the really tough days, so... So the natural progression for us, which was lucky, was for us to take over as managers. So what did it look like in the 80s? I know part of, and I think there was some of it in the 70s, 80s and 90s, you know, there was the the TB days or the BTEC days. Yeah, and that was BTEC days that we sort of went down there. That was the beginning. And had live export been established then? No, I don't think so. Not much anyway. Yeah, so Mm cattle weren't going up you know, as they do now, mm, up to mm. Darwin. So what what did it look like? And I guess in terms of development, what did you have to work with? It was really modern cattle station because they, it, Mount Isa owned it, Mount Isa Mines owned it, so we had beautiful big cattle yards, nice little donga houses, little one-bedroom houses, and you'd have to see photos, great big white fences because steel was ten a penny back then and big lawns and trees and Bessie Springs, which is near the top of the head of the MacArthur River, that giant massive river, this massive springs called Bessie Springs, which is similar to Edith Falls but bigger. And that was literally about 300 metres from our house and that was our 
playground. Was that playground inhabited by local wildlife? Freshies, but yeah. no. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was too far up river. <laughs> really? Okay. And this was Heartbreak Hotel didn't exist then. Yeah. Okay. So our social life was very much the Darcy's of Malapanya, the Holt family of um, Balberini next door, and us. And then really getting involved with the Borrelula Rodeo and things like that. That was our social life. What's, I guess, when you look back at the days at MacArthur River, what are the memories that stand out for you? I loved it. Every bit of it. It was so far from home and it was like a lot of folklore come out of Borrelula, which even other Territorians were. Ted Ted Egan wrote all those songs. Have you ever heard any of the Ted Egan songs? No, but that name sounds very familiar. Yeah, he was the administrator of the Northern Territory, but he was a, um Aboriginal welfare worker in the 60s and 70s, I think. But he was also a, a singer-songwriter and he played the beer box. Oh, really? Yeah. Like As a beer, drums. Like a beer carton. You're gonna, you, beer carton. You're going to have to I am. Google it and you're yeah. going to have to put, put a bit of it as part of this podcast. So the song you need to play when you find it is, we've got some bloody good drinkers in the Northern Territory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they've got some bloody good drinkers in the Northern Territory. From down down to Alice Springs, they're always on a spree. From out on the Barclay Tableland and across to VRD, they got some bloody good drinkers in the Northern Territory. He could have written that in 2023. <laughs> uh, and so that that was inspired by you guys or the, oh, your community? A lot of it was the Territory and, and um, the, uh, that uh, Gulf region in, down around Borrelula because there were a lot of crocodile hunters down there. There's the story of old Roger Jose, the hermit of Borrelula, Roger Jose. There were a few people like him. He was a highly educated man, and the old police station there had, or would have been the police station in the days, in the 40s and 50s, had this massive library that had been donated by someone in England, by some benefactor or something in England, this amazing library. And um, he read his whole way through that. Oh, amazing! It's got amazing stories, Borrelula. But yeah, we loved it. It was it was real pioneer country. By that, it was sort of ten years maybe behind um, Victoria River District, particularly because we were closer in the Victoria River District to services, whereas Borrelula was so far off the beaten track. It was um, one. Lane Bitchman Road when we came across in 1981, but a lot of the Barclay, that road that you went on from Heartbreak down to Brunette. Barclay Homestead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of that was still dirt. Yeah. And, and was it the kind of place that you'd get uh, flooded in during the wet season? Yeah, yeah. Yep. We had some really big floods. We had some really big cyclones through Borrelula, Cyclone Kathy and Cyclone Sandy. Had you experienced a cyclone before out at Kalani because that's fairly inland relative to MacArthur River. Yeah, we had wild wet seasons and, and, and that sort of flooding that we had um, when Ivan was killed in 1974. But other than Cyclone Tracy, I'd never experienced – I didn't experience Cyclone Tracy, but I had um, cousins and that that lived up there and their houses all got wiped out. So what was it like – I I guess – 
back then, did you get forewarned that there were cyclones coming? Like, you know, just last week, you know, we had Cyclone Jasper in Queensland, but they obviously had been talking about that for a good week, 10 days beforehand. There's heaps of like advanced warning and prep mm. time. When you're out at the station, was there anything Yeah, like not that? too bad because of the radio, you know, the two-way radio, which did weather reports and fire reports and emergency warnings and all those sorts of things. So I remember whichever the first one was, maybe Cyclone Cathy, we sat up half the night just listening to the reports and, and hearing that Borodilla was being battered. I mean, we got massive rain out of it, but we didn't get the winds or anything because we were 100, yeah, 100 kilometres inland. The, the most distinctive thing I remember about it was when it all died down and we could get out of MacArthur River and drove into Borodilla is the way all the trees were just leaning on their sides, like the whole landscape was all these trees <laughs> where from the ocean side to um, right up to the mine. They were just leaning the way the winds went. <laughs> did they start growing that way afterwards or do they kind of eventually yeah, die and fall out? They just, I think they just grew up right. A lot, a lot, there were a lot of damaged trees, of course, um, but, you know, that they're big spaces out there. Were you also educating your children? No, we had at MacArthur River a little one-teacher school and there were about oh, 16 to 20 kids in that school. So um, where the rest well, of them? Well, mainly from? Aboriginal kids. Oh, we yeah. had a couple of really big Aboriginal families on the station. That was yeah. their traditional country area. Mm-hmm. And, of course, their fathers or their older brothers and sisters or brothers, most of them worked in the stock camp when we first went there. Your okay. stock camp was mainly Aboriginal. So I, I sort of looked after all the housing, the school, the kitchen, the ordering, the the welfare of the people, doctor, nurse, um, psychiatrist sometimes. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, a fellow was killed on the road in a car rollover about 15 kilometres from the homestead and Ronnie Raggett, who is still alive and I have saw him recently, an Aboriginal man came into the station, he said, oh, there's a truck rolled over and a little truck it was, um, and the person's definitely dead and he knew who it was and he said his name. And I said, oh, are you sure? Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, come on, I'll grab some couple of blankets and dunas and we'll take it out and cover him up and I'll and call the police. And he reckons, bugger you, mate, I'm not going there with dead person. <laughs> You know, when I think back, I just got in the car. I, I think Sean and them must have been out mustering somewhere. I just drove down. And I I called the police before we left. I left home, told them where it was, and I just sat there on the side of the road and waited till they got there. That's so lovely <laughs> for the person who passed away to have. And I knew who he was, and I wrote about it in my book. And yeah. his daughter, many years ago, after I wrote that book, I came up to me in Cash Arena Shopping Centre and I didn't really know her because she was growing up. I'd only known her as a little girl. And she said, thank you for writing that story about my dad. It sort of just gave me the story of his life really um, because her, the parents had separated by then. That's just I just think that's such a lovely gesture to be with someone once they've gone. And you didn't have to do that. You just And that could also. No, but would you not? I, don't know. I think I would be, I'd like to think I would do that. 
I I like to think I could wait. Mm. But when you say you went there and like you know covered them up, I haven't mm. seen a, a a dead body in. I saw one on TV by accident. There was mm. a was flicking through the channels and SBS had a show where they were doing autopsies. And I was like, why? Oh, why no, is I'm this not on TV? keen on that? I'm <laughs> not keen on autopsies. <laughs> but I've never seen one in real life and I, I mm. feel like I would really freak out mm. to see. So Well, luckily his body wasn't that damaged either. So yeah. it wasn't awful. And the reason why I grabbed the doona on that, because I thought, oh well if if Ronnie if it's likely that he'd be alive, at least I could wrap him up and oh make him, you know, secure or something. I don't know what I was thinking, but I had pillows and You were thinking from a place of, like, compassion and being nurturing. Oh, my goodness. And just like with Ivan, like, you just, mm-hmm. that's, had had you, yes, in your time in the bush between this in, this time and, and Ivan, was there anything else that you came across? Like, or? Oh, no, a few people badly hurt. Um, but, but thank yeah. goodness, just the two to. Yeah, and and our, and dear old fella, um, Ronnie's father, Sonny Raggett, um, who's got another amazing story. He died in in the camp down the back. He was quite old too. I don't know how old he was. Um, beautiful old gentleman, but he just died in his sleep one night, and I could hear all this wailing. And then the um, the son's knocking on our door at the big house at Macarthur River, and he's going, "Come, come down, mate. I think my dad's." Oh, he's not very well. He didn't want to say. Oh, yeah. But he was dead by the time I got there. And and I've just when I think back and I think, well, how did I even know he was dead? I mean, I sat there and held his pulse and said, kept saying, "Sonny, are you all right? Are you all right?" But they all knew because they were all wailing. Yeah. So I just went back to the house and called the police and waited till the police come, which is a good over an hour from Boralula. Do you have to do any kind of counselling or something after that? After seeing a, a body? I didn't. It was just part of life. I, I think. Say, yeah, I don't that, think you really. Is that the difference of being in the bush? I wonder, though. Like, especially yeah, with that, because you just have to. Yeah, because like you didn't even bat an eyelid. You just like, oh, I'll go get a doona, jump in the car, and go wait with this person. Yeah, like, and I'm just sitting out there on my own. Like, and it was about nine or ten o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, and this would have been a. <laughs> no, go, go home, and then Sean says, "Oh, what have you been up to? Oh, just sitting out in the road." <laughs> oh my god! I called the police, you know, and. Um, yeah, it's a bit, bit weird now that I'm <laughs> sort of saying it and verbalizing it. No, no, it's beautiful. It's actually really beautiful. I just, I just, I'm in awe of how you were just, you didn't even like think you just went and did it. Like you just wanted to go on. Yeah. Well, I think that that's definitely this thing, the toughness you get of growing up in the bush because life was really, really hard when I was young. But not for me because when you're a kid, you just have a good time, right? We were always hanging off the back of vehicles. And then when we could ride, we were just always galloping around, mustering and drafting cattle and hanging off top rails and branding and all those sorts of things. But it was tough and it would have been incredibly tough for my mum and my parents who were responsible for all these children and all these people. When you were older or so not a child, did you know how tough you were doing it? Like just, you say, being out at MacArthur River versus sitting here today and being able to look back and see what life is like now and how like, it's mm. easy we've got it. Did you know back then that it was hard or was it just that was just life? That was life. It was just a big adventure to me really. Yeah. You know, just wake up every day. So lucky to live that amazing life. Um, I was always grateful to have that opportunity that, 
most of the world would never have. And never, never thought about going mm. anywhere else or never, you know, never flicked open a magazine going, I wish I lived in Bora Bora. Mm, no, definitely not. Just have just, been overseas a lot, but yeah, I still love the territory the best. <laughs> After 14 years, you and Sean shifted back into town, which mm. is a very big change from being out on a station to living in town. How did that come about? It came about more again as a as a move, a shift in what we were doing. Uh, the only options we would have for advancing our career at MacArthur River was to go to Queensland. We didn't really want to do that. The community was changing dramatically from a pastoral um, outback cattle community to a mining community. The mine had started all the exploration. They'd put the... Um, gas pipeline across. They were starting the massive grade upgrades to all the road to get to the Bing Bong port. So it was becoming more of a mining industry, I suppose. And that was one of the reasons. And then uh, MacArthur River still exists, but Balbrini Station, which our best friends had sort of died a bit of a natural death, was given a uh, large excisions were given to the Aboriginal people. Um, Bill and Gara Station all those were it was just changing. It was different, other than the Darcy's of Malapanya who still live at Malapanya. Yeah, our social life was changing. The rodeo was still one of the main events of the year and still is one of the most amazing events. Thank God it's still going. Yeah, it was just changing. And our kids were, I had my third child out there. Yeah, I don't know. Really. Did you feel sad seeing it change? Because I, like, I'm the kind of person I hate change. So mm. seeing, you know, being somewhere and then coming back 10 years later and, you know, like down south in farms when, you know, people are buying out their neighbours. So where there used to be like 20 families in an area, now there's like three or something. Yeah, that's I how it, hate that kind yeah. of change. And that's what sort of happened. There's really only MacArthur River now, the main one, and Malapanya in that area. And, of course, the Barclay still is a... Um, fairly big family place. Though. Yeah. They turn over people's much more now, I think, than in our days. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of sadness of a time that really special time. It's really hard to explain that amazing friendship and camaraderie and sticking together when things are really tough like the floods or a major trauma with one of your neighbours. I mean, we still all had arguments over boundaries and just whose cattle were crossing what <laughs> fence lines and everything, but there was also this deep mutual respect for the survival instincts and the, the things that people did to, to give to their community. You know, when you guys made the decision, obviously career-wise, and you said that I guess the kind of community was shifting in your in that region hmm. to come into town, you'd spent more or less your entire life being out on stations. Mm. It's not just you know how you'd spent your life, but I feel like very much tied to your identity and to your family's identity. So, what was it like coming to live in town? Did it feel like just very crowded and there'd be <laughs> my grand my grandparents came here in 1947. So, you know, my grandmother and my aunts and uncles lived here. It was like still like home. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it was pretty tiny to most places, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but you didn't miss just having that, like your own huge backyard or not being able to hear your neighbours? No, just 
sort of made the decision and then it's a matter of see where that takes me, you know. Easy transition. Easy transition. Cause okay. Yeah, because Catherine's my hometown even though I grew up on Kalani because, yeah, my grandparents, both of my grandparents were here and lots of aunts and uncles and cousins. So when you spent your whole life on stations, more or less, as, and then you find yourself in town, what what is your plan? What do you do? What do you want to do? I guess there's a mm. whole a whole lot more you can do in town mm. than I mean. I now now these days on stations, um, a lot of people can work do work that's not they they can run all sorts of businesses and do jobs remotely. It doesn't matter that they're on a station, but back then that obviously wasn't mm. an option. So oh, now you're in yeah. town with access. But also in my Borrelula days, I owned a shop in Borrelula, a little variety shop with. Cowboy boots and clothes and children's, you know, if you can imagine it, yeah. from pharmaceutical products to ladies' dresses and funeral gear and plastic flowers on the wall and the hairdresser used to come once a month from Catherine and spend a week there doing everyone's haircuts and waxing your eyebrows and that is so oh, cool. And, um, was, you are the kind of person I would have been very happy to have in the community <laughs> to, to organise that service. And I and I also had a little um, hawker's van during that time and used to go to the rodeos and sell all the cowboy gear, all the Thomas Cook and what's your name, Mara and William Boots and the Tubras. And, I know, I've had a crazy life. Yeah, you have. <laughs> I just take on everything as a new adventure, you know, if an opportunity arises. So I had that shop in Borrelula and I bought a shop in Catherine to move to a little boutique called Cool Change. So I sort of had a little, an income and a business and Sean didn't really have anything. So he drove school buses for about six months and then he got a job at Road Trains Australia managing and help with the you know, sending the trucks out and coordinating them and all those sorts of things. We've always been adjustable to whatever gets thrown up at you. So we came up in Christmas 94, 95, and then I ran for council in 1996 and became a councillor on and off for 20 years. I have to ask, where was the dress shop? And for anyone who's going to be passing through Catherine, <laughs> where obviously it doesn't exist anymore, but where was it? It's, um, you know, the little Catherine Arcade. I'm trying to. Oh, you know, yeah. sort of near the Finch. Yeah. That yep. little arcade yep. that you walk through. And there's a hairdresser right at the back. Right at the back. Yeah. That hairdresser was there when I was there. And then there was a shoe shop and a little cafe. And where Tony's little cafe is now was Cool Change, my little boutique. I love that. With groovy little, you know, Balinese type dresses and things. And I have to tell you this story. When I bought it, it had a really good supply of, of all the essential smoking instruments for marijuana. <laughs> so it had all these little trays with all the different fittings and pipes and bongs in the window and all sorts of things. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. And, of course, it was my bestseller. <laughs> and then I got broken into about six times. So one, <laughs> the window got smashed. And so one morning I just got out, I took the whole lot and threw it in a wheelie bin. I'm not having that stuff in my shop anymore. I'm never going to be safe. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I had candles and mandelas and 
all those groovy things. Show some people the next time they walk past, they were pretty disappointed. Yeah, like, yeah. Hang on, where's it all gone? Where's it all gone? <laughs> gone? Yeah. Meanwhile, the Trevor traffic's... was emptying the bins that day. It would have been like, hello. <laughs> wow. I would not have picked that. And and so we've had the boutique shop counsellor. Before we get to what you're doing now, was there is there anything else you've made career-wise that you mainly did before your most recent career? Uh, working in the arts, probably. Yeah. yeah. I was the chief executive officer of um, Catherine Regional Arts for quite a few years. Started the Fringe Festival, which became the Junk Festival. Sometimes I think it when you hear about someone's childhood and then, and then you hear bits of their story, it's pretty easy to just assume a trajectory of their life and how it's going to turn out. But mm. if there's ever anyone to kind of show that you can't, like, it's you. Like, mm. But don't you think Catherine's a, a land of opportunity? Yeah. If you want to have a go, even now, if you just want to do a bit of hard work and come up with a great idea, um, you can do it. I think it takes a lot, though, to step outside your comfort zone and what you're familiar with. I mean, station life was, you know, for the better part of your life, everything. It was always you know, this this connection to station, but then to have a boutique and to, to be a counsellor and to work at the arts, like mm. they're very different to, you know, so to yeah, be like. Yeah, but I think maybe the bush is your good training ground on adaptability. That you can, yeah. Yeah, that. And you can see opportunities or you have to take opportunities sometimes that you hadn't planned. Yeah. When things go, when the cattle industry hits a wall. Yeah. You know, you, you've got to be creative and think about what am I going to do to get through this? And so I think you, yeah, your creative brain's much better. <laughs> I guess growing up on the station, because like you said, you guys were all a part of a team and you all had a role to play, but you all, even though everyone kind of had their role, you would have been doing lots of things. Like out there, you can't necessarily wait for a plumber to come out or, or an electrician or a builder. Mm. You've got to be able to do that stuff. So I think you realise that, I guess for me, growing up in the city, I I kind of looked at those roles and be like, well, no, you need someone who knows how to do that to do that. Mm. Whereas I've noticed people who've grown up in the bush are like, well, no, I can do that or you know, my partner tries to fix the stuff in the house and I'm like, please, can I just get an electrician? <laughs> <Please."> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas growing up on a station, he's like, a, a no, I have to. ability. You I have, have to. to. Yeah, I had to do that mm. growing up. So I guess I still carry a bit of that mindset that, well, no, like if you want to go, if I want to go be CEO of something, well, no, like you've mm. got to go do training for this and blah, blah, blah. Like, whereas growing up on the station mm. where you've learned that you can basically do anything because mm. you just do it, you know. Yeah, I mean, your partner, he, he can probably fence, fix motor cars, whatever. Vet, be a vet, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, maybe it just gives you that bit of more practicality or just you can do it. You have to do it. Maybe. So, I don't know. And that this is why when I met you last year, I was like, so cool. So tell us about your current job because, you know, never one to slow down. And, <laughs> and, you know, people say, again, talking about starting something new that's completely different to anything you've ever done before. So, you're looking for another job, uh, you could easily just get another boutique or mm. step back into uh, an executive role, you know, mm. stay in the arts. But why do something that you're somewhat familiar with, Tony, when you could pick something completely 
Because I'm field. crazy. That's why. <laughs> why do you think? I'm, yeah. Well, it sort of has another story to it that I like anything creative, and I always sort of wanted to be um, an interior designer, or you know, I love color and function and art. Anyway, so in and I sort of thought this would be real estate would be a great way to do it. Be great fun, and I love people, and I love sticky beaking at people's houses and. All those sorts of things. So in 2012, I got breast cancer. So I had a year of treatment, um, running up and down to Darwin. And when I was up there having radiotherapy, which I had to be there for six weeks because you have to have it every day, five days a week, the radiation. Um, and it's not too, it, you know, I was cooked. I had a cooked boob. That's for sure. And I, wasn't a hundred percent, but I wasn't sick. And the real estate institute were running a um, real estate certificate thing over fortnight, so I just decided I'd do that. <laughs> I got my certificate in real estate, and then I didn't get a job um, here in Catherine, so it all went by. And then I was semi-retired up to two years ago, and what, that opportunity arose to go and work for Nutrien, Harcourts, and the rest is history. You know, when some people are facing cancer and undergoing chemo, they might just sit down and take a break, Tony. Relax. Mm. <laughs> Not you. <laughs> but there was also that sense of urgency too that, you know, if I, d- I die, I've got a lot of things to do, and, and one of those was write those two books. Yeah, which I'd had a lot of it I'd already done. And um, same thing during that, that time, um, my recovery time and everything slowed down. I obviously didn't go back to work for a while. Um, I was at the Writers' Festival in Darwin and that's how my two books I can't believe I, I actually almost forgot to ask you about, about them. <laughs> no, we'll do that another time. No. Oh, no, we're definitely going to do – well, we've got more episodes with you, but I love that. I'm like, okay, we've done – station stuff. We've done MacArthur River. She had the shop. She was counsellor, CEO, real estate. Oh my gosh. I think it's because that's what you're best known for as being like such a mm. successful author that I was like, you know, in this episode, I'm going to, let's, let's find out something else about Tony, you know? Mm. Um, and so I just almost compartmentalized that and put that to the side. So yeah, in terms of other thing, you know, another feather to your cap. It's a feather to your cap, string to your bow. Yeah. Author as well, mm-hmm. real estate agent, author, business owner, CEO, Crazy counselor, yeah. <laughs> you know, camp drafter, station karaoke manager, like, queen. Really, once upon a time, not now. <laughs> Back in my well, crazy days. This yeah. is just there's so much, mm. I, and that's why I guess I wasn't. You know, sometimes I think when you have a podcast with someone that's written a book, you're like, oh no, are we gonna are we gonna give it all away? But there's no way you can talk in an hour with what's been written across two books. Like mm. this is just kind of a taster for people of of what they can get in the mm. book. So, well, before I, I let you go, because it is, yeah, like you said, festive season, it's close mm. to Christmas and I do want to keep you, um, let you leave on a good note so you come back next year to no, do a few more fine. episodes. Tell us about the books because it is it is the wet season coming up and people are going to need some things to read. <laughs> All right, A Sunburnt Childhood is my life growing up at Clarny until I got married. 
And then my outback life is the 14 years down at MacArthur River Station. Again, a part of my arts and creativity, I've always loved writing and I've been a member of the, this Catherine region of writers, Crow, since it started. And it's, I think we're in about our 27 or 30th year or something like that. So I've always loved writing and I always knew that my story was an important story to tell of a time in the Territory, a different time, but still contemporary and modern in many ways because everyone's still here. I love hearing that. I just, Sorry, that sentence you said, I knew. Now I'm going to repeat it. I'm like, I hope I repeat it right. I, I knew my story was an important one to tell. When you say that with such conviction, that just makes me so happy because I feel like this, and I, I come across this a lot trying to get people on the podcast Oh no, who'd want to hear my story? You know, mm. people, so many people don't believe that their stories are important, whereas I think stories are universal. And while yours is set in, you know, starting off in Kalani with no running power and water and sleeping on a dirt floor outside to everything mm. else you've done, while other people might not have done those exact same things, there will be themes, there will be lessons, everything that people can pull from that. And that's what is so amazing mm. about stories mm. and why we should tell them. Yeah. And I think. And the most important other thing I wanted to do in that was to honour the people that I grew up with, like full-blood Aboriginal people who buried where, born under a tree that no one knows anything about, and but they had such a profound effect on my life and my family's and other people's as well, you know. And so, yeah, I just wanted to tell their stories, like old Miko the cook who fought in the Middle East and was an alcoholic and um, – Mad as a hatter, but and he was another one of those white men that ended up in the territory. Who know? Who knows why? What was he running from? But he treated our family like his own, and we treated him like our own. And yeah, and those um, stolen generation guys that I grew up with, honour them because no one ever complained. Hey, everyone just got in and did it and had a good time and. Um, as you know, living in the Territory, everyone absolutely drank hard, played hard and worked hard. Yeah. And there was no time for anything in between. <laughs> and I think it's so important to have as many accounts of history and people's lived experiences as possible because the more that's out there, the more uh, nuanced, I guess, everything mm. becomes, the more shades of grey you see, whereas when there's only a handful of people telling stories from history, it can become pretty black and white and this side, that mm. side, whereas the more honest, you know, um, you know, true stories we hear from anybody, no matter what their role is, where they were in the world, then you can start to piece together your own, you know, and, and you don't, otherwise you can, you can lose whole periods of history, you know, when people aren't mm. talking about certain things that Yeah, happened. bringing the humanity to it. To it, yeah. yeah. And I think, well, and the other thing I did want to write was to honour my parents um, and to tell the real story of what happened with him becoming an alcoholic, you know, drinking the place into $14 million worth of debt, um, all the fallout from that, you know, was not the happiest times. And when I spoke to my mum, who is still alive and turned 88 last week, to try and get her permission to write the book, I said, to her, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the domestic violence and that I don't want to pretend it wasn't there like other people write stories and yeah. pretend it's not there. And she said to me, you write whatever you like, it's your story. 
and that was fantastic. It, it gave me the, the power then to write the story and I think I hope in a very honourable way that this was the story. Um, it was tough in the bush then. People end up in relationships and streams in their lives that they can't control and, you know, some can come out of it and others don't and Bill Tap didn't. Well, I really look forward to catching up again and I'd love to do an episode on Bill, but I'd also love to do, I know your mum doesn't do media mm. these days, but I think it would be great to, to some, if she's, if she's, um, agreeable to it, to, to talk about her and, and capture some of her stories. I know mm. there's so much about Bill out there, but I think your mum, yeah. Mm, no, it'll probably have to be me. Yeah, no, I, was <laughs> that's, that's a, I don't expect her to talk, won't. but, but yeah. if she's a, if she's happy to have, us talk about her. I'd love to learn more about her because, yeah. like I said, yeah, oh, there's- she won't mind. I call her the warrior woman. She's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Yeah, I think you know, there's yeah, so much about him out there. I'd I'd love to learn more about the mm. person who was right there well, all mum, that time. Yeah, Mum was always going to write her own book. She even says she is now, but she's got these amazing diaries and journals. But it's got too big and it's too long and it's too late now really yeah. for her to do it. Yeah. Too big a story. Too, oh, plenty too of time. Big a task. Too, plenty of time for you, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, yeah, one on, on and talking about your childhood as well, and then and and those characters that you've had throughout your life. But I suppose as I like to finish up every episode, looking back on the part of your story that we've discussed so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? I think the takeaway lesson is to be brave, you know, when when there's opportunities and trust your gut and trust your instinct and just go with it. Life's there to be challenged, I think, and we're living in amazing times as well, so I think it's just take those opportunities and run. I've always been a glass half full person, so I always see, I think, the good the good things in people and the good things in your community and and the positive things that you could do by just adding that little bit of extra, even in a person's day, with a smile and a kind word. I think, yeah, I've just learnt kindness, and especially since cancer, I've become a much nicer person, I think, because, well, you're faced with your own mortality and thinking, well, maybe I won't be here for very long. What are the important things to me? The important things to me are um, love and respect, kindness, um, and just looking after those that are not maybe as well off as you are, you know, your community. You, I believe that you should leave your community a better place than when you came into it, from the smallest little thing that you can do to the biggest. <laughs> 